Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Over the weekend, Missouri announced its first presumed case of COVID-19. That's the disease spread by the new coronavirus. And it was right here in St. Louis, specifically St. Louis County. The patient is a young woman who'd been studying abroad in Italy. Health officials said she and her family were under a voluntary quarantine. But no sooner had the case made the news than things got a whole lot more dramatic. The woman's father and sister apparently broke their voluntary quarantine. And here to discuss what happened next is St. Louis Public Radio report. Sarah Fenton. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. So help us understand what happened here over the weekend. What do we know about this family breaking quarantine? So what happened was this uh, broke yesterday. And so on Saturday, as you said, the governor uh, announced that um, there was a, the first, they call it presumed positive, basically it needs to be uh, to be uh, you know, redone by the CDC. And sort of we'll a double sure. check. Yeah. So they need to double check it at the federal level. But they're treating it like, you know, this person has the disease caused by this new virus. Um, and so what happened was even before that ta- that test came back, um, based on this woman's travel history, uh, state and county health officials said, uh, you know, based on your symptoms and your travel history, um, we want to make everyone safe. And so uh, this woman and her family were in isolation. Um, what happened on Saturday night and what was announced on Sunday was that um, even though the county had directed this family to isolate themselves at their house in Ladue, uh, the father and the daughter, not the daughter who had the virus, but her sister, had attended a dance at the Ritz-Carlton in Clayton. And so that was even though the county said, don't go anywhere, they went everywhere. Any, they went somewhere. Um, they don't have symptoms at this point, so it's not like they were, you know, like sick and going out into the world, but they were still disobeying um, what county officials told them to do. So we knew they were exposed to their sister. We don't know if they actually have this COVID-19. No. No, they haven't been tested because right now uh, the only tests that are being done are on people who have this travel history with a combination of the symptoms just because there aren't really enough tests to test every single person that wants. So they're being judicious about who gets one. Well, and also joining us today to explain what this news may mean for you is Dr. Stephen Lawrence. He's an associate professor of medicine and assistant dean for curriculum and clinical science at Washington University School of Medicine. And he's also an infectious disease specialist at Barnes Jewish Hospital. Dr. Lawrence, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So for people who were at the Ritz-Carlton on Saturday night, um, while this father and daughter who at this point we do not know if they have the disease, if people were there, should they be freaking out right now? Short answer is no. Um, the good news that we know about this virus is that it is transmitted almost, uh, uh, the vast majority of it is from transmission and being in close contact with somebody who has symptoms. Now, while we do know that there is transmission that can occur with people who don't have symptoms, that is very likely to be much less common than those who who do have symptoms. And so um, there's really no information or high likelihood that we would expect that 
these uh, individuals were um, have infection at the time. And even if there was, there uh, would be, um, it would take a fair amount of close contact to put somebody at high risk of transmission. Now, to be clear, the risk isn't zero. But I think to put things into perspective, anybody who would have been at that same location is at very, very low risk of uh, contracting illness from that instance. So if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, if this older daughter who at this point um, does have the disease and does have symptoms, if she had been there, it would be a different story. But until a person is actually having symptoms, their likelihood of contaminating someone else, you're saying that's very low is, is what we believe. That's right. And so it's all a measure of um, likelihood. So certainly we do expect that the most likely uh, way to uh, be infected is when you're around somebody with a lot of symptoms. When, If you think about it, this makes sense because when somebody has symptoms, they're coughing, they're sneezing, and that is forcefully expelling uh, respiratory droplets, saliva, and so forth that have lots of virus in there that can get out into the um, immediate environment. And without symptoms without coughing, sneezing, the uh, there's very little virus that does emerge, even from people who are infected. And so what we really can base this on is that we do know it does happen, that there is the possibility of transmission when people don't have symptoms, but that is not likely to be very common at all, and that we should be much more focused on trying to uh, avoid close contact with people who do have symptoms. And we have already a number of voicemails from listeners who knew we were talking about this today, other questions that have come in uh, via email or via Twitter. Um, but if you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for either St. Louis Public Radio reporter Sarah Fenton or for Dr. Lawrence, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Sarah Fenton, I'm one wondering, uh, what was the political fallout from the family choosing to do what it did? Um, are they in trouble? Right now, they aren't being punished. I, I, well, it, it, it's just how it started out was um, what people, what uh, County Executive Sam Page and Mercy Hospital officials told reporters on Saturday evening when this initial announcement came about this patient was that, uh, and a lot of reporters were asking that, like, like how are you going to keep people in the house? They said, we trust people to do what's right. Um, we trust people to do what's in the interest of public health. And so we're not like, you know, monitoring these people. We're not like having a guard at their door. And, you know, that didn't age super well, given this. The uh, very next the, day. The developments the next day. Um, so what happened was the county has sent a letter to this family that's saying we are not above legally forcing you to do this through a court order. And so basically it said knock it off or we're going to take this to the next level. Now, we heard from a number of people who are very upset about this St. Louis County man who broke the quarantine to go to this dance. Here's what one Glendale man had to say about that. <laughs> For the Ledoux Daddy Dancer, whose arrogance may well have exposed the whole approximate community to coronavirus, throw him in solitary confinement, throw away the key, and let him rot. Now, on a much different note, um, one, one woman who didn't leave her name, she had a much different fear. Hi, I'm really concerned about how aggressively people are speaking about the people that have the virus and especially the family that went out against quarantine. Um, you know, to me, it seems like 
this could get out of control. If we have the flu, can the government lock us down? I mean, I think the threatening tones are coming across and lynch mob type of attitudes towards someone like this should be discussed and addressed in our community. And honestly, this type of response to me would encourage people not to get tested out of fear for being chastised by an entire community. Uh, Dr. Lawrence, do you think it's possible that these sort of draconian measures that members of the public are now calling for might end up proving counterproductive? This is very complicated in situations like this because it really does call for a balance of balancing public safety and also um, individual um, you know, liberty. And it, however, when the stakes are very high, then the balance falls in the in favor of much more restrictive measures. And we're, you know, to keep in mind, the U.S. hasn't gone through something um, like this for many years. It's something that most uh, people living today, you know, would not have had the experience going through these types of decisions that are being contemplated on a daily basis by our public health officials, by our policymakers. And it's, in, you know, it's, it's something that each day as the situation changes and the risk may change, then the level and the degree by which some of these measures may need to be taken um, just has to be reassessed on a daily basis. But um, it, it is a time where we do need to um, certainly have dialogue. We need to uh, make sure that there is an understanding that there is some risk that this is an important public health event that is unfolding, um, but there is also um, not a reason to have um, a large amount of anxiety and panic because there are things that we can and should be doing to make the impact on our community um, less as this unfolds. I'm going to go to the phone lines here in a minute, but if you're listening and you want to join the conversation, specifically if you have a question for health reporter Sarah Fentum or for Dr. Lawrence, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Um, let's go to the phone lines. Laurel is calling from Washington. Laurel, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Hello. Um, after working many years as an ER physician, I am concerned with the volume of patients that present to the emergency room, um, particularly those that rush to the emergency room with influenza. My concern is we're going to have a lot of people. Um, Laurel, I'm, I'm so sorry. We, we appear to have lost that call. And I, I think she was on to something interesting, which is, are emergency rooms in the St. Louis area preparing? Do we have the capacity at this point if, if this gets bad? You know, there definitely are preparations being undertaken right now as we speak and have been for well over a week uh, for all of the emergency departments, I'm sure, in the region and across the country. And certainly the there is surge capacity. There are ways that things can be done to be able to safely uh, triage people as they come in to determine if they're at risk of this having this infection or something else, and then to be able to safely determine who should be tested, uh, and then who could be sent home, whether they're tested or not, and who needs to be admitted to the hospital. All of these preparations have been ongoing for weeks, and they are still ongoing. That being said, the concern about a exceeding surge capacity within our healthcare facilities is a legitimate concern and something that um, we hope through 
certainly public messaging and uh, helping people to uh, understand when it would be the best times to uh, seek care uh, will um, help to make sure that, uh, that it's not a complete overflow of the emergency departments all at once. And that's one of the reasons why it's important for everyone to protect themselves against this. Um, what I've heard a lot of public health officials and epidemiologists talk about is that they're hearing people say, oh, I'm not going to get sick. And if I get sick, I'm not immunocompromised. I'm not old. I'm okay. But even if someone gets sick and they go to the hospital, they're still overloading that capacity, even if they're not in some kind of like lethal risk. And so that means that even if you're a healthy person and you're not immunocompromised, it's still important to take all of those protective measures to keep doctors available for people who really need that help. Um, we have another voicemail we'd like to play. This was left from Fred Boniker of Glendale, and he has a question about school district and library closures. I'm an older, retired person living in Glendale. I've heard that the Kirkwood School District is wrestling with the dilemma of closing schools or not in the district. My concern is for the libraries in the area, which are patronized from folks from all over the region. Should they be shut down as well if necessary? Dr. Lawrence, that's such a hard question. How do public officials assess what to close and, and when? Well, you're right. This is a very difficult uh, decision. On the our, all of our public health departments are watching this on a daily basis and helping to determine at what stage different types of interventions might be needed. So, at the moment, and I'd like to reiterate that at the moment we have no known community-wide transmission within St. Louis. We have one case that's been identified in a traveler who returned from an area where there is widespread transmission. And so as it unfolds, if we do develop more widespread community transmission, then decisions such as closing um, event or canceling events and closing some public spaces will need to be made. And those are really determined partly on a case-by-case -case situation from which regions are affected, but also the types of um, events and or locations, if they are frequently populated or uh, uh, used by people who might be at high risk, those might be some of the ones that would need to be um, consideration for closing earlier. And, you know, this is, and if we do get to a point where there will be decisions like that made, you know, it's important to remember these are things that are being done in a spirit to protect the whole community, and we can get through this all together. And there's, you know, St. Louis has an interesting history with this. In 1918, um, St. Louis escaped the worst of the 1918 uh, in influenza pandemic because you know, there were rational, what we call social distancing measures that were undertaken uh, with the lead of the, um, the health commissioner at the time. And the community all chipped together, uh, you know, they pulled together and decided to keep the community safe and follow public health advice at the time. And we ended up far less affected than other cities. And one of the ones that was uh, certainly used as an example was Philadelphia that took sort of an opposite approach to it and they ended up much more heavily affected. Now, this is not to say at all that this is anything like the 1918 flu, but I think there are some lessons we can learn from history that, you know, following our public health uh, directives that uh, when it becomes necessary and we all pull together as a community, we'll have much less of an impact.
We're talking to Dr. Stephen Lawrence of the Washington University School of Medicine, um, as well as Barnes Jewish Hospital. We're also talking to St. Louis Public Radio health reporter Sarah Fenton. I want to go back to the phone lines. Bill is calling from Farmington. Um, Bill, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Good afternoon. How are you guys today? Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, what's your question? Well, I wanted to get the doctor's take on, I guess, travel in general, not necessarily for business, but more vacation. My wife and I in our upper 40s, we have a cruise actually planned for five weeks. We keep getting emails from the airline, the cruise line, saying how safe everything is, encouraging everyone, keep your vacation. And you see stuff on the news encouraging people not to go on cruises. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so hard to know what to do, and especially looking five or six weeks out. Um, we've heard from a number of listeners about that today. Uh, Dr. Lawrence, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the, this is a very difficult question because of the fact we don't know what things are going to look like in four or five weeks. And so one of the things that uh, principles that we've been using, um, certainly at least leading up to this point, is, you know, if things look like there's very little transmission in the communities that you may be traveling to at the time, you could wait until it gets closer to the time period where uh, you would travel. And then, you know, if you need be, cancel at the last minute. You know, I think the travel question um, also, there are two big considerations. One of them, what's my risk of becoming infected in either the transportation modality that I use to get there or at that location? That's one decision. But another one that is probably more likely, even if it's not as serious, is will there be some disruptions for when I return? Mm -hmm. So for example, um, if people were to still try to travel to Italy right now, where there is very widespread transmission, they may you know, have some risk of becoming infected with the virus that causes COVID-19, but they will certainly face um, some restrictions upon return where they will be uh, advised to not go to work, go to school for two weeks after returning. And, and that may be the true risk there is just that the threat of quarantine. That is a likely event if there is travel in an area with a lot of transmission. And, and we're seeing even domestic locations now where that's an issue. So, for example, up at uh, King County, where Seattle is, there is now uh, some community transmission that, you know, does make it um, a less safe environment and could, even if people travel there and are not infected, they could face some restrictions upon return. So I think there are two mm -hmm. things to keep in mind when trying to make these very difficult decisions on whether to keep travel plans. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for that call. We have a number of callers, and, and I know we're not going to get to everybody, so I'm going to try to quickly summarize some of the major themes that, that are coming in today. Um, one of them, a great call from Jim in Bridgeton. He's wondering, what is the incubation period for this? Um, do we know anything about that? I'm going to let the doctor take that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, so... You know, the the overall, it's really considered to be two days to 14 days. And the incubation period, just as a reminder, is the time period from when you're exposed to when you start to show symptoms. And for the most part, um, we really have seen very little, if any, people who become symptomatic with infection after 14 days from the time they were exposed. That's, w that's the basis for the 14-day quarantine period. However... 
um, the vast majority are between two days and nine days. And so it's very likely that um, you know, people who have been exposed, if they are going to get sick from it, would know that um, by nine days afterwards. We use 14 days to really just make sure we're a little overprotective. So another question we're seeing from multiple people, um, at what point and how do we distinguish between cold and flu symptoms and those of this particular virus? Well, that's part of the dilemma right now because uh, th this is the tail end of uh, cold and flu season. And uh, remember, coronaviruses, all coronaviruses are causes of a common cold. And so, you know, the fact that we're seeing uh, this coronavirus, which can in most people cause cold-like symptoms, but in some people cause more severe disease, that they are, when they're occurring at the same time, it makes it impossible to be able to tell just on symptoms if it's one or the other. So at the moment, when there's not community transmission, the real distinguishing factor is whether you have had exposure to a person who's known to have had the disease or you have traveled to an area where there is a lot of transmission. So we use what we call uh, exposure history to be able to determine if somebody is likely enough to have COVID-19 to require testing. We've also received multiple questions regarding the risk to those with asthma. Can you speak at all to that? Yeah, the risk with, uh, to, for to put this into context, the risk is very much related to age, is the most important risk factor. And the more data we see, the more it's reinforced that, in general, children uh, have very little, if any, illness from this. And when you say children, does that include teenagers? Teenagers um, as well, but certainly younger children in particular. And there have even been at least some case reports that infants who are infected don't really get sick from this either. I'm not sure we have enough data to say, oh, don't worry, they'll never get sick. But I think that there are case reports that do indicate that infants um, at least don't always get sick from this. And certainly as children... Um, they are potential uh, to have infection that have minimal symptoms, potentially could infect other people, but they don't get very sick themselves. Once you start reaching age 60 and 70 and 80, we really see a, a, a linear increase in the uh, seriousness of this disease and also um, the chance for uh, the uh, death occurring with it. There are other medical conditions that are uh, risks as well. So chronic heart disease, chronic lung disease, and uh, the same types of things that put people at risk for complications of influenza are what we're likely to see here. Uh, with people for COVID-19. One last question. This comes in from Julie, and she's asking, what impact would coronavirus have on pregnant women and the developing fetus? Do we know anything about that for this very new problem? Well, there actually has been some uh, recent uh, data that have come out about this as well, and that it does um, seem to, it looks like at least in a case series of women who are pregnant, that there is not transmission of the virus to the fetus and the developing fetus. So that's good news. And to date, there um, hasn't been a lot of information to suggest that um, pregnancy is a really significant risk factor for worse disease with this, like it, uh, we know for sure it is with influenza. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, and I know I said that was the last question, but I guess I, I want to have you leave us with one last thought here. What is the one takeaway you'd want for people who are listening to everything out there and just growing increasingly concerned? Um, 
I would say continue to listen to uh, voices you can trust and to listen for information from our public health departments and from you know, physicians who, who you trust. And this is going to be a significant public health event. I don't think there's any question about that, but it's also something that is manageable. And if we all pull together and work to help protect ourselves and each other, you know, we'll get through this. Well, Dr. Stephen Lawrence is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Assistant Dean for Curriculum and Clinical Science at Washington University School of Medicine. He's also an Infectious Disease Specialist at Barnes Jewish Hospital. So, Dr. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And St. Louis Public Radio reporter Sarah Fentum, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, no problem. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.